And then as parents, we say, you know, we both kind of felt guilty that we didn't really know that much about nature. So we started making an effort to introduce our kids to nature. First, with just weekend excursions, then weekend overnights, and then nature trips. I was, how old was I? I was certainly in my 30s, maybe even 40 something. I fell in love with nature late in life. And then I became aware of the threats to nature, starting with climate change. At the same time, I was a business person at Goldman Sachs. And I I had a lot of success at Goldman Sachs. I mean, one of those right time, right place sorts of things. And I was a person who believed then and still believe, by and large, there are exceptions, but by and large, business can be a force for good. So I started to wonder, hmm, could business be a force for good in addressing environmental challenges? Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Mark Turchek stands tall in environmental action. He was president and CEO of the Nature Conservancy for 11 years. So this is about the Nature Conservancy from Wikipedia. Founded in 1951, the Nature Conservancy has over 1 million members and has protected more than 119 million acres of land and thousands of miles of rivers worldwide. The largest environmental nonprofit by assets and revenue in the Americas, the Nature Conservancy ranks as one of the most trusted national organizations in Harris Interactive polls every year since 2005. Forbes magazine rated the Nature Conservancy's fundraising efficiency at 88% in its 2005 survey of the largest U.S. charities. That was from Wikipedia. Before that, he was a partner at Goldman Sachs. Are you curious how someone goes from investment banking with Hank Paulson to the Nature Conservancy? Mark describes that in this episode. We also enjoyed that we are both reaching new audiences. He talking about global warming in Alabama to an audience that normally wouldn't accept this and, and what that gained him as a leader. I talk a bit about my working with MAGA Media and the New Right Network. Mark and I really appreciate each other's work. And you'll get to hear the nuances of people who do things while well, he's done things on a different scale. But, well, let's listen to Mark. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Mark Turchek. Mark, how are you? I'm very good. Thanks, Josh. How are you? I'm very good. And uh, I think it's kind of funny what we were talking about just before we hit record. So I'm going to talk about what happened to me just before and how that led into leadership and the environment. And uh, what happened was that for 20 years ago, I worked at a company that was acquired by S&P and had this 401k plan with them. And I keep getting paper from them. And I try to call up to have the paper taken, like to get electronic only communications. And for years, I've been trying to get them to do this. And I just spent an hour on the phone with, like, after all this time, after they said it could be done. And the reason I mention this is that I think this is a simple thing that everyone has had happen to them. But I think it also exemplifies the importance of leadership, that the importance of leaders acting personally themselves in the area of the environment. Because the challenges, I think a lot of people think, are carbon dioxide and plastic and mercury. We do have to know about those things. But the actual practice of changing, especially organizational behavior is much more about how leaders step... Well, what, this to me seems a leadership issue. Is like all the people that I was talking to, they'd like to do it, but they can't because the system's messed up and the system needs some changing. I feel like you probably have insight into this and you've probably done things like this. I'm not sure, but it feels like a lot of people think... I don't know, they think it's easier to change than it is. I think that they think, how does this sound to you? Does this sound familiar? Well, I think it's a really revealing anecdote. We've all kind of been there and it's very frustrating. And one reason that's frustrating is the nice people that you're speaking with, I'm sure they're nice, 
they're kind of caught up in the same thing too. But probably whatever company who you want to relieve you of this paperwork, it could happen if some authority, some some officer overseeing that work would just dig in and, and in a determined way, spend a few hours on this and, and figure out how to liberate customers and his team from being burdened with these regulations. So that's one little example. I think there are so many of these. So about climate change or environmental challenges, you know, we've done a pretty good job, the royal we, of, of elevating these challenges. So lots of people know about these challenges increasingly. That's good. They care. That's good. But a mistake I think a lot of people still make is they think it's someone else's job to act on all of this. Mm-hmm. However, I think if you flip it around and you say, well, what can I do? It turns out most people can do a lot. And then further, what happens afterwards is it's a good feeling to roll up your sleeves and make some change happen. And I think people, when they do that, they become more committed to the cause. That's good. And they also have a good feeling. They feel like they're actually doing something rather than being on the sidelines. So then in my own work, I ran the Nature Conservancy until a year ago for 11 years. I spent a lot of my time encouraging like senior executives in the private sector, CEOs, to do this. And that's appropriate. But what I came to understand over the 11 years is it's not just senior executives who have these opportunities. Everyone does. And if we can get more people to understand that, I think it will accelerate progress. And I also think those people will find it fulfilling. They'll feel better about themselves and they'll have more enthusiasm about going forward. So you know, for that kind of, I know that this is a focus of your podcast and work. And for those reasons, I was eager to uh, join you on the podcast. So thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you for indulging me in, in, in sharing my misery of, so why do I do it? Why do I spend all this time? Because the paper, it's like, I can easily say, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. I'll just put it in the recycling. And I could easily say the recycling counts as not throwing out. But how did I start doing all these calling places up when I get too much mail? Actually, I really have emptied up when, I don't know if you know B. Johnson, she had a it's this woman who has a book on zero waste at home. And I read the book and I thought, well, I already know all this stuff. Actually, decreasing the junk into my mailbox is really satisfying in a way that I can't get across. And it, 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 what you said, it's like, I'm like, why am I doing this? I got better things to do at the hour in the morning. But it's a weird feeling, alleviating this feeling of being out of control of my own mailbox. It's the same with picking up litter every day. Do I make a difference in a city of, of New York or out in the country where I was staying with my mom? It's not really making much of a difference in terms of my impact divided by billions of people, but it's satisfying and it cleans my neighborhood. It cleans where I live. And I know that it will have, well, I've already been on TV a couple times because of it. And I know that when I talk to organizations, they ask me how I can institute programs. And so it's leading to bigger things. And what you're talking about, you have an experience of, of that good feeling. Yeah. I think, Josh, I mean, you're a little bit ahead of, and you're obviously way into this. You've devoted your life to it. So in that respect, you're not a good example of like the average Joe. Mm-hmm. But the average Joe, what I, you know, the average person out there who cares about the environment and, and has a kind of inclination to blame others, and there are people to blame. There are bad actors out there, people, organizations, et cetera. So that's not wrong. But what I try to encourage people to do is at least at the same time, think about what can I do? And I think it really becomes powerful. Like, I'll give you two examples that I think are good. One, Amazon. So it was only a few months ago where Amazon employees organized, and it was in the news, they were going to have a one-day walkout because they were not satisfied with Amazon's climate policies. And before the walkout occurred, two things happened. 
Amazon announced a bunch of additional climate policies, which I think are pretty good. And Jeff Bezos announced this enormous philanthropic fund for climate. Now, do I know for sure that those workers who organized the workout made it walkout made it happen? No, but it's pretty evident that it probably did. So kudos to those Amazon folks. They didn't sit around on their hands and complain. They did something. Another example, I went to Williams College and now I'm on the board, but I wasn't on the board at the time. And Williams College students and professors uh, got together to suggest that Williams College should divest fossil fuel from their endowment. And I think this is one of these things that reasonable people can agree or disagree on. I wasn't on the board yet, but at least at that moment in time, the board chose not to divest. But they listened to the students and faculty and they said, what we are going to do is we're going to invest. So they agreed to commit a portion of the endowment to impact uh, investing, addressing climate change. They added faculty positions so that there would be more kind of education oriented around climate. They doubled down and and intensified even further their already ambitious on-campus climate initiatives, and then also in the surrounding community, so that a Williams student today who wants to learn a lot about how he he or she can build a career addressing climate, it's a pretty good setup. And so then on that story, again, I say to, I actually gave a speech about this to the students. I don't think they were happy because they still want divestment, which is good. But I said, you know, you should be kind of proud of yourself and recognize that you had some success. True, divestment hasn't occurred yet. You can keep fighting for that. But all these other things, which I just articulated, happened. And I think they're actually very material things. I could go on and on, but most people have more agency to do these kinds of things than they realize. Most people have a job or they go to school or they belong to a church. They can all encourage their organization to do more. Or everybody in a country like ours in America, you know, if you're a voting age, you can engage in politics. You can even engage in politics before you're old enough to vote by getting out the vote and these kinds of things. That's powerful. Or you can volunteer with a nonprofit organization, the environmental movement. I now know a lot about that because I ran the biggest one for 11 years. Most of the leading environmental organizations are pretty darn good in my judgment. They could all benefit from more support. And there are a number of them. You can pick the one that best suits you. Anyway, I could go on and on and on. But if you, if you become more proactive and do these things, I think it does lead to progress. Furthermore, you, you're inspired, you're, especially if you're doing things in combination with others. It's a very good feeling. So you move from being despondent about environmental challenges to more proactive and optimistic that you can make a difference. People see you in action. They see that positive feeling. They want, they want to join you. And you get from despondency to determined, proactive engagement. And I think that's a pathway toward progress in all likelihood. Yeah, I love that you just shared all that. I, it's so many people, I say stuff like that too, and they're like, yeah, but governments, corporations, they should do it. They should. They don't. Your friends, all of us can help make that happen. Yeah, exactly. That's what the government responds to. I mean, if we wait for government to start and then we act, we're going to wait a long, long time. I want to go full Machiavellian on this because I've had a lot of people on the show who, because of they did things that other people said, uh, government should do it, corporations should do it, what I do doesn't matter. The people I talked to, they rose to leadership positions in places like Apple and Google and the federal government and McDonald's. And simply by doing what everyone saw would do something, but no, the people who do it get the promotions. 
I mean, there are more CSOs today, chief sustainability officers today than ever, but there's not that many. If you want to get a C-suite position and the environment means something to you, experience acting is going to get you that position more than anything else. It's even better than that. I mean, it is puzzling to me because we all think of, of business leaders in particular or ambitious young business people as these very determined, fearless people who will do whatever it takes to succeed. And in some respects, that's true. But it puzzles me when it comes to environmental opportunities and challenges, they become timid. I think that's starting to change, though. So I left my role at the Nature Conservancy about a year ago, and I'm now spending a lot of my time advising private sector players, CEOs of companies, the people who run big investment funds, and what they're beginning to understand. Well, they're beginning to understand two things. One, the pressure is on. That's especially true now after the COVID. I mean, we're not done with these crises, but we have the COVID crisis. Now we have racial discrimination crises, Black Lives Matter. And business leaders at all levels, I think, are thinking now, wow, we really do need to do more. And that's good. It's a belated recognition, but it's good that it's happening. So they feel it from that kind of pressure. But I think they're also understanding, hey, this could be a pathway to really strengthening our overall business. So if we think about climate change and how to address it and how businesses might address it or investment funds might address it, there are so many untapped or under tapped opportunities. And so then to your your point, even if you're a mid-level or up-and-coming person in one of these firms, if you zero in on those kinds of opportunities and really accumulate information and make constructive suggestions, I think it's pretty likely over the period ahead. I don't have a better idea on how someone might have a successful career. So it's kind of fortunate that these things are coming together. However, it is still the case, in my view, that people are too timid about that. And so I want to encourage folks to go for it. I don't really see much downside. I see significant upside. One example, which just kind of puzzles me. If Let's talk about the U.S. and climate change. One third of greenhouse gas emissions come from buildings. And in almost all cases, probably not all, but in most of them, if the owner of the building would make the investment necessary to reduce emissions, that investment would pay back really fast because, of course, their energy bills would go down. But it doesn't happen. Why doesn't it happen? Because landlords aren't paying close attention. They're not in the buildings. The the lessees in the buildings aren't paying, don't get the benefit of the upgrade. Building codes are really backward and are slow to change. Environmentalists don't focus much on buildings, et cetera, et cetera. So who could change that? There are businesses emerging now that are going after the make buildings efficient, reduce energy bill opportunity. I think it's really exciting. And it's just one example of many, many examples how there's a lot to do to address climate. We need that to happen for climate reasons, for humanitarian reasons, for biodiversity reasons. But it's likely also to be a pretty good business opportunity, too. I'm going to give another example that you made me think of because you were talking about the Black Lives Matter, which it sounds remote from environment. But now I don't know too much about the defund police stuff. All I know is that it's getting some traction. But I also know that people have been working on it for a while in obscurity. And before the demonstrations going on, I would have thought, why are you wasting your time trying to defund police? Because it doesn't make any sense to me. We need police. But suddenly, people who are toiling in the background suddenly are in the foreground. And who knows when it will happen that whatever people are working on environmental, it's going to be in the foreground pretty quick. And also the same thing with, the, with viruses and pandemics. I mean, people have been talking about it for generations, when, not if. 
And suddenly they're very important right now. Bad news can be good news. I mean, you don't want to be Pollyannish or glib, but there's at least, there can be opportunities in these crises. I think actually these current crises, which are really significant and obviously vulnerable people suffer and face enormous challenges. So I, I really don't want to be glib and all of us have to do what we can to support those vulnerable people. And there are a lot of them. But I also think at the same time for people like you and me who are focused on environmental challenges or climate in particular, I think it's an opportunity now to accelerate progress. I really do think the business community gets it they, because climate change kind of looks like COVID a little bit. We knew about pandemic risk. Scientists have been telling us it's crystal clear for a long time there was a reasonably high opportunity of horrific outcomes, but the timing was unclear and the odds weren't clear. And basically, sadly, we did very little about that. And now business leaders see if you don't prepare to address risks like that, it's not just a humanitarian crisis, it's a business crisis. And so most business leaders who've risen to the top and have responsibility, one of the things they're supposed to be good at is identifying risks and managing in that way. You know, that's what you do as a business person. So now let's turn our attention to climate change. It's kind of the same setup. The scientists have been telling us crystal clear, this, these risks are coming. The odds of them aren't even very low anymore. The outcomes will be catastrophic for humankind and for nature, but also for business. So we can think about it just like business people. And there's a lot that can be done and business leaders can do about it. And so I think those business leaders are saying, we better get moving. And what can business leaders do? First of all, we need, obviously, we need much better government policy than we have today. How do we make that happen? Well, we all need to dig in. But business has a lot of political clout. If you look at a business and see them fight for and lobby for the policies that they want for their business, we know they're good at it. We also know that most business leaders today recognize the threat of climate change. They say in their annual reports and their sustainability reports, we get it, we're cleaning up our own act, we're for better policy, but they're not pushing for that policy like they push for the stuff that's closer to their business. So we need to change that. And then the other thing business can do is just step back and say, well, how might our business make a difference? And most businesses have opportunities to make a difference. And I think more and more business leaders are going to conclude that is consistent also with maximizing your long-term business value. So people like you and me, then, we have to use our bully pulpit and our work to do everything we can to make sure we don't miss this opportunity for progress. Because if we sit on our hands, I think it also can go the other way. Some people in response to these crises, you know, engage in demagoguery. We see that. They, they engage and promote division and um, divisiveness and partisanship. And we have to try to rise above that and take advantage of this opportunity. I'm kind of cautiously optimistic. What's happening, I'm not an expert in Black Lives Matter. I'm trying to become smarter and to better understand what I can do there. And I think there's probably a lot that can be done. And again, I don't want to be glib about the nature of the challenge, but there is now data that's pretty encouraging that like American citizens at large have woken up out of their stupor and understand past practices have been horrific and it's time for change. That's encouraging. And so can we also help make happen that kind of better awareness on other important matters, including climate? Yeah, I, uh, climate and environment, I would add. Oh, and, yes. Yeah, uh, there's two things I want to go out here. Oh, I'll go with the first one. Businesses, it's very quick for them to realize if I make this more efficient, I can save some money. And so 
there's a lot of doing well by doing good. There's some changes that aren't necessarily going to lower their costs, but are still important. And I don't know if people are so quick to do those things. Right, right, right. So you have, it's a really good observation and you're right. So like most people who care about climate change and, and believe in the, in the power of markets would like to see a very high carbon tax right now. And so if you're a, an individual, that would usually accelerate in all likelihood a, transition, a faster transition from fossil fuel to cleaner energy and also a transition to greater efficiency. And just reducing using energy. Yeah, reducing energy use because people will respond to those higher costs. So you might say, well, why don't those business leaders just do that anyway? Well, it's a little bit hard because they're in a competitive marketplace and it's hard for one company to voluntarily raise its costs when its competitors might not do so. It's hard to ask a business leader to do that to an extreme. So rather what I think we need to ask business leaders to do there is please push for the government policy that I know you know we need so that the cost goes up and, and all of your competitors face the same higher cost structure. So at the end of the day, the most important thing in my view is better government policy. I think this is the best example. We have to make polluters pay. You can't make it free to dump carbon into the atmosphere. It's hard to ask people at scale to do that on their own, although there's a lot of encouraging stuff underway. So even without the regs, lots of companies are using ever you know greater amounts of renewable energy, et cetera. But we need government policy, and I think we have to ask business leaders, but also every other citizen to push for that policy we need. So I like to talk about voluntary initiatives from the private sector and by citizens, but I'm glad you asked me this question because I want to emphasize very strongly, in many cases, public policy and regulations are what are most important. And the way to get there is for all of us to fully engage as citizens. We can't be on the sidelines. I concur. Cultural, in my words, that's cultural change. And I think the values of the, that we would change to are values that everybody holds. But we, and we generally feel kind of weird about like, I know what I'm doing is polluting, but it's for comfort and convenience. I think we don't want to have that weird feeling. To me, it feels like twisted up inside when you're doing something, you know that you don't have to get the... You can go without coffee for a little while if, you, if the only way to get it is with a disposable plastic cup. But nowadays, we're just like, we look around and everyone's got the disposable plastic cup. And we're like, well, it's what everyone else is doing. I'll do it too. Speaking to a business audience, there's another audience. That when last time we spoke, you talked about Birmingham, Alabama, and that resonated with me and my working with all these MAGA, new right people mm. uh, that keep telling me, where were you before? Yeah. You're not like bashing me on the head with guilt and shame. What happened to you in Alabama? What was it? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that. And by the way, it's another instance, I think, of, of people wanting to criticize or blame too early. So for 11 years, I ran the Nature Conservancy. It was really a thrill. What a, what a privilege. And the Nature Conservancy is a really big global environmental, environmental and conservation organization. But let's just talk about it in the United States. The way the Nature Conservancy, or we call it TNC, is organized in the United States is it has 50 state chapters. So just by definition, then, it's organized, in other words, just like the United States and just like Congress. And so I really had no choice to do my job well. I couldn't just spend my time in coastal states with kind of left-leaning people who were more like me. My job required me to, you know, to go to all states, just like where TNC was organized. 
And so I learned so much from this, but I don't want to make me sound like a hero. The only reason I went and visited red states often was my job required it. What I learned, I think, was really powerful. So anyway, in Alabama, one time five or six years ago, the Kiwanis Club of Birmingham, Alabama invited me to be a speaker. And my team at headquarters at TNC in, in DC said, oh, don't do that. That's like a bad use of your time. And I said, no, I, th- I think I should do it. Like, you know, my job is to speak to, you know, diverse communities and, and build more allies. And we have an Alabama chapter and they said, they didn't mind me coming because, you know, I could help, we could go have meetings with donors afterwards and stuff. And they said, Mark, if you do this, what do you plan to talk about? And I said, I want to talk about climate change. And my colleagues, good people, they said, oh, God, don't talk about climate change. That's like a non-starter here, which I thought was interesting. My team in, at headquarters said the same thing. Then the Kiwanis guy called me up who invited me. Oh, Mark, thank you for doing this. By the way, what do you plan to talk about? And I said, I plan to talk about climate change. He said, oh, oh isn't there something else that you could choose? And I said, no, no, I think this is a good topic. Don't worry, I'm not an idiot. I'm, I'm going I'm to prepare a talk that's germane to the audience. And so then at the time, there was a a nonprofit initiative. You can still find it on the internet and maybe it's still up and running, Risky Business. And Tom Steyer and Hank Paulson, who was once my boss boss at Goldman Sachs, and I think Mike Bloomberg, I think they were the sponsors. But what they did in Risky Business is they tried to assess in a very detailed and science-based way what climate change would mean in the near term for different regions in the U.S., So they did, at least at first, they didn't worry about what causes climate change. And they didn't also ask, in this case, how to address it. They rather just said, let's see if we can document what lies ahead for the next five or 10 years in different parts of the U.S. for climate change. So I used their data. So I went to the Birmingham audience and I said, look, I'm here to talk about climate change. And you could see people kind of bristled in the audience. Is oh, God, here goes some liberal lecturing us about climate change again. And then I began my talk, and I laid out what I had learned about what lied ahead, what was likely in the near term for Alabama. And a lot of the business in Alabama, I mean, I'm going to forget all the details now, but a lot of their business is outdoor-oriented business, obviously including agriculture. And high temperatures is going to be a problem. And it's, it's pretty evident. I mean, none of this is that complicated. So I talked about all that. And then I shifted away from the risky business stuff to what might we do about that? And I said, look, I was trained as a business person. I was a partner at Goldman Sachs where I worked for 25 years. And and this is an audience of business people. There are economic friendly ways to address these kinds of challenges that conservative economists have always been for. And I explained how a carbon tax would work. And that was the kind of talk I gave. And I didn't get a standing ovation or anything like that. But afterwards, people came up to me and they were very friendly. And a number of people said to me, you know, Mark, this is the first time in our knowledge that someone came to Birmingham, gave a talk about climate change, and it was respectful. It didn't blame us or mock us for having a different point of view. And um, this is a constructive step forward. And then we had a little bit of reception where the dialogue was even better. I mean, the people who probably didn't like it didn't come. But my takeaway from that was as a environmental leader, I need to spend more time reaching out and with folks who don't think they'll agree with me. I need to try to better understand their point of view. I probably should start my dialogue in some area where there will be common ground. So in this case, I talked about like what lies ahead for Alabama that could be a problem for the economy and then see how much 
room there would be for reaching agreement on different ways forward. And I don't think we do enough of that in society these days in any respect, but in the environmental movement in particular. Why is that? You know, in the environmental movement, there are some bad actors. And so the environmental movement is really good at criticizing bad actors. And we need that. That should continue to happen too. But I think we overdo that. And what we need to do more of is reaching out, listening to others. If you're inclined to blame someone, for example, I would say before you blame them or criticize them, go spend some time with them in respectful dialogue. And they'll learn a little bit more about you. You'll learn a little bit more about them. I think that's a pathway forward. I sure wish we saw more of that in political leadership these days. Interestingly, you do see it at the city level and sometimes at the state level because they don't have any choice. Like most cities and states have to balance their books and they have to deal with immediate crises. And so they find a way, they have no choice, but to put aside partisan divides and get on with some common sense, common ground problem solving. And I'm in favor of more of that. I'm hugely in favor of that. Oh, and then the other thing I'll say is business is supposed to work that way, and it generally does too. You know, business people, they don't want to get bogged down in partisan divides. They want as many customers as they can. They want to lower their costs and have success. And so they're pragmatists. And so I think business can be a better ally in all of this also. I love that you went and did this, despite other people saying, oh, I don't think you're wasting your time. That This is what, it's almost come full circle of, of like you it's not getting your hands dirty, but you went where others didn't, and it was a necessary place to go. Yeah, again, and I wouldn't get, I wouldn't give myself too much credit. The reason, you know, I was the head of TNC, and we had a chapter in Alabama, so it was easier for me to do this than most people. But the lesson I think is we should all try to do that more. You could have talked about something that they would. You could have talked about plastic. Oh yeah, or I could have, I could have gone been much and more... talked about like saving a nature preserve. I could have picked an easier topic. By the way, if anybody's interested, if you Google my name and Birmingham, Alabama, I wrote a blog about the experience because I actually think it was a, an important one for me. And you learn from it. And right now, mostly in the environment, I see people talking to the base. They're talking to people who agree with them. I'm all for that, you know. But don't think that that's going to get votes from the other side to come to you. Yeah. And on the contrary, it will often get more votes against you if they, if they see too much of that. Then if you are the one who can at least listen to the other, to people who disagree with you, not even persuade. I mean, it's very difficult for someone to change their view when the person talking to them is completely unwilling to change their view either. Yeah. And simply listening is, is, gets you pretty far. By the way, Josh, if, if anyone listening to this is, is interested in this overall opportunity, I just reread a book that I read early in my time at the Nature Conservancy, and it, it had an enormous impact. The book is called Playing the Game, although it was turned into the movie Invictus. So sometimes you'll find the book under the title Invictus. I think the author's name is John Carlin. It tells the story of Nelson Mandela when he was released from prison, and then he's elected president, and he wants to bring the country together. And so he works so hard to help his core base of, you know, uh, people who are really angry with the way they've been treated, and they have good reason to be angry. He keeps arguing to them, though, no, we want, we want our country to work going forward. We want to bring people together. And he uses the rugby team and their quest for the global championship as, as the opportunity and most of, of Bandela's base thinks this is the stupidest idea ever. 
but he uses his clout as leader to do it. And maybe the book like simplifies it or glorifies it, but it works. And it's a really moving, I think really moving example of what I'm talking about. Now, I don't mean to liken myself to a noble leader like Mandela, but when I first read this book at the Nature Conservancy, I said, oh, I should try to lead this way. And for a while I did, but then I kind of forgot about the book and, and, and I stopped doing that as much. And I started getting in arguments and you know being more difficult. And I think that hurt my success and the organization's success. I should have kept rereading this book, but the example of Mandela, and there are others obviously, but particularly as told in this, this book, Playing the Game or, the, or Invictus. The movie, by the way, is not a bad movie, but it doesn't capture it to the full extent. It's very inspiring. I just reread it. Because of COVID, I, I created with friends a little book club, and they let me pick the first book. So I picked this book, Playing the Game. And I wondered, would they like it? And they all, they, they liked it very much. And it was a diverse group of people politically. And they all agree. What we ended up talking about is, could such leadership work in the United States today? I believe it could. And I also think, though, at a person-to-person level, we can all do this. Like in the, the book makes very clear, Mandela, when he's in prison, and it's a horrific prison, Robbins Island, he befriends his prisoners to such a degree that when he's president, one of his prison guards- I think you said prisoners, but he befriended the guards, I think. Oh yeah, he, he befriends the guards because they're just guards. I mean- they, they treated people roughly, but he was sympathetic because the system sort of made them do that. So anyway, later on then, decades later, he's president of South Africa. One of his guard's sons is killed in a car accident, and Mandela goes to the funeral. So, I mean, he walks, this is not like BS, he really walks the talk of, of getting to know folks and befriending them. And my take on the book and his example is, yes, political leaders can do it at his elevated level. But we can all do things like that every day in our personal life. And, and that kind of kindness and compassion and understanding, it takes a little discipline too, self-discipline. I think it would accelerate environmental progress. I think it would accelerate progress addressing climate change challenges. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Man, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, and I saw the movie. I haven't read the book. Now I want to read the book. The and book I, is way better. Okay. I want to add that the, the Springboks, the, the rugby team, was like uh, very nationalist, right? It was like racist. He picked a hard one. But anyway, read the book. We don't want to okay. spoil it. Everybody on the listening should read the book. So many lessons from Mandela. I'm going to add one just because we're all locked in right now, is that we're a lot of people losing their shit over three months lockdown. He was locked down for 27 years. And in that time, had a birthday party with 200 million people attending. We can do a lot in even under lockdown. And it's bringing me closer to Mandela, at least in my heart. We're in sync there. And I want to ask, you you listen to a bunch of my episodes. Are you game for me walking you through the process of, of asking the environmental 
values and, yeah. and so, yeah, yeah, fire away. So, okay. You've worked, you've dedicated decades of your life to environmental action. What motivates you? What's the, what do you think about when you think about the environment? The first thing I would say is uh, there's hope for everyone. I stumbled into this rather late in life. So I grew up in the city of Cleveland, right in the city. It was a good place, you know, kind of a middle-class, lower middle-class immigrant neighborhood. It was a fine place to grow up, but it was very urban. It's not the kind of place you would grow up and become an environmentalist. Although it is true, when I was a boy, the Cuyahoga River caught on fire and the air pollution was terrible. And that was prelude to the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act. But then anyway, I go on to go to school. I get educated uh, and I end up working on Wall Street. Fine. I'm busy. I marry uh, my wife, Amy. We have four kids. Her background's kind of like mine. And then as parents, we say, you know, we both kind of felt guilty that we didn't really know that much about nature. So we started making an effort to introduce our kids to nature. First, with just like weekend excursions, then a two-day weekend overnights, and then nature trips. And I was, how old was I? I was certainly in my 30s, maybe even 40-something. I fell in love with nature. It's so interesting. The more I learned, I started reading nature books. And so I fell in love with nature late in life. And then I became aware of the threats to nature, starting with climate change. At the same time, I was a business person at Goldman Sachs. And I, I had a lot of success at Goldman Sachs. I mean, one of those right time, right place sorts of things. And I was a person who believed then and still believes, by and large, there are exceptions, but by and large, business can be a force for good. So I started to wonder, hmm, could business be a force for good in addressing environmental challenges? That was a very late in life revelation to me or question. And so then I started getting involved with certain environmental nonprofits who, who did work on that basis, just like I recommended earlier that others should. And I really enjoyed it. I got to meet interesting people. They were very smart. They welcomed me in. I was able to make a contribution. It added some meaning and richness to my life. So on and on and on. I want to go back to when you fell in love with nature. I want to go back to that beginning. Sorry to cut you off. I'm happy to. So like, I remember one trip in particular. It was our first really uh, dramatic trip. Uh, where was it to? Costa Rica, I think. So with the group that does these trips, Thompson Family Travel, they arrange, they're not that expensive. It's with groups. There are four families with kids and you kind of rough it. You, know, you sleep under a roof, but you kind of rough it. And you know, it rains, it pours, there's mud. And you have, you have two guides, one guide who helps pay attention to the kids. But kids, our kids love this. Like they're in the mud, it's raining, they're in nature. It's like, how refreshing. But at least this adult also loved it. And then there's a guide who's sort of more attentive to the adults. And both guides are well-trained in how ecosystems work. And so I just learned, I mean, I began to learn the names of birds, began to learn the names of trees. I began to learn how ecosystems work together. I think most people exposed to that would, I think it is human nature. I think there's an inner environmentalist in everyone. I think you would find it intriguing. And so then I would say to the guides, like, what books should I read? And I remember uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, uh, E.O. Wilson's books, The World Without Us. Uh, you've had uh, Alan on your, sh your show. All the classic kind of Enviro 101 books. Rachel Carson? I yeah, Rachel Carson. Mm -hmm. They're all good books. I mean, different people will like, different ones of those books more. But if you're in nature and then you're reading those books and you have any curiosity and humanitarian impulses, I think you're going to be inclined to be on the side of nature. At least I was. 
And that's all that really happened. Uh, it wasn't more than that. Well, there's another thing that happened too. I think I was yearning for, I think this is human nature too. I was a Wall Street investment banker. Fine. We can debate. I mean, I think, you know, I, I was proud to be an investment banker, but it was just business. And I was a pretty good family man. Fine. And I tried to be a decent local citizen. Fine. But I had a yearning like, wow, shouldn't I like be doing more for the world somehow? I also think most people have such yearning, although it often goes untapped. And though, so for me, very fortunately, those two things came together. So I started engaging in the nonprofit world. It was really, for me, fulfilling and rewarding. So I don't really deserve credit. It like I wanted to do it. People were nice to me. But then I finally decided, it took me a while to do this, I should change careers and become an environmentalist. Enough with Wall Street. I'll emphasize it was really hard for me to do this, but a lot of people, including our friend Marshall Goldsmith, he was really instrumental in in pushing me hard, like shoving me violently. Get on with this because you're right, you should do it. And then at the time, so I was going to leave Goldman Sachs, but at the time, my boss was Hank Paulson. He was the CEO. Shortly after this little vignette, I'm telling, he went on to become Secretary of Treasury under, under the second President Bush. But he said, Mark, your idea is, he knew more about the environmental world than me. He, well, he was like really engaged. So he said, hey, your idea is not really that good. Rather, you should stay at Goldman Sachs and build an environmental effort for the firm. You know, you're a senior person. You've got some credibility. You can do it. And so I did that. He left, Hank left, but then with the full support of his successor, Lloyd Blankfein, at Goldman, we had an environmental effort. It started in 2005. Other great people were involved. And um, the core idea was, let's find ways in every part of Goldman Sachs' business where we can do something important for the environment that is also good for business. And the more we looked, the more we found. It seemed easy to me. So then we started doing it in behalf of clients and then I got so excited about this overall opportunity. I said, I should go work. I should try to work for an environmental organization. And the Nature Conservancy had an opening. I applied to be CEO. Probably there was some hubris there. Everyone said, they'll never hire a banker. And I said, well, there's no downside in trying. And then what you learn as a Goldman Sachs banker is if you really want to say, win a piece of business, you prepare like crazy. And so I prepared like crazy. At the time, this is 2008 early 2008, there was the idea in environmental communities that market-oriented approaches were going to become ever more important. So I emphasized that in my pitch to get the job, and I got the job. So I I was really fortunate. And so many great people helped me. It would take forever to name them all. But what an exciting and fulfilling and positive experience for me. But there are two reasons I'm glad you indulged me. Let me tell you my little story. First of all, I believe there's an inner environmentalist in everyone or almost everyone. So if you're like I was, as described, sort of clueless about the environment, go out in nature, read some books, meet some environmentalists, and you can learn a lot. And it's it's interesting and fulfilling. Second, if you want, if you have a yearning to do something to make the world a better place, and climate or the environment is the cause that appeals to you, but this would be true for any cause find a way to do more. And so um, you don't have to do it as dramatically as I did, as I told you in my little story. I started by making small contributions to environmental organizations, looking for ways I could volunteer. Anyone can do that kind of stuff that actually I think can make a very big impact. And it also will provide the person who does that meaning and fulfillment and I think happiness. So thank you for letting me rattle on. (laughs) 
On the contrary, I really enjoyed hearing it, especially, I mean, most people, I think, focus on the, the words and the message, but I want to focus on the emotion of, of what you shared. That it was like, I heard fun and connecting with family and joy. And that's been my experience as well. It's like joy, connection, community. And I propose now that we're coming up on an hour. I propose that we pick up where we are now okay. in a month. Uh, and I'd like to ask at the end, is there a message you want to leave the listeners just directly or anything I didn't think to ask? Yeah, yeah, we talked about it. My message would be ask yourself if you care about environmental issues or climate change, but actually any other issue, before you start blaming others and criticizing, ask yourself, what can I do? And when you think about what can I do, think hard, push yourself hard, and then include in that too some room to, in a nice, kind, humanitarian, listening-oriented approach, reach out to some folks who don't see things the way you do and see if you can find some common ground kind of like Nelson Mandela did. Mark Turchek, thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. As much as the content of what Mark shared, I love the emotion of, as I read it, enthusiasm and expectation of success. Now, this is knowing the challenges and likelihood of catastrophe, all the challenges he's been through and likely more to come. Whatever progress he makes, these things are going to happen. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. 